Welcome to Hunting Land. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. Buying rural property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. It's the local experts in rural real estate financing. They can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. Well, Clint, how's it been going this week, man? It's the, the market, my listings are about twofold, seems like, on the number of queries I'm getting from interested buyers. Uh, are you busy as you could be right now? We are. I've been dodging all these rainstorms, these afternoon storms we keep getting, and I feel like there's a constant thundercloud chasing me around the south, but as long as we can get them in before we get soaking wet or the lightning starts striking, uh, we had a lot of showings and a lot of requests. Yeah. And I mean, interest rates, you know, we were just talking about Alabama ag credit and I mean, interest rates are just still crazy low for everything, every kind of real estate, but land included in that, you know, one of the things that interest rates affect almost directly is how much land is worth. We're going to be covering that again today with Jason Burbage, president of National Land Realty. We're going to be talking about the Midwest this week, but after we talk to Jason, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about tax shelters and all the different types of tax shelters that are available for landowners. But before we get there, let's go talk with uh, Jason Burbage, president of National Land Realty for this week's How Much Is My Land Worth segment. Jason, welcome back to Hunting Land, man. We're excited to have you back on. Thanks, guys. Great to be back. Last time we talked about land values in the Southeast, and today we want to move in to uh, land values in the, in the Midwest. Before we get there, though, what I want to know is with the trends that are happening right now, I want, I want to know if, if you're seeing that trend extend into land nationally. And the trend right now is that supply is, for the most part, again, this is not across the board, and that's really what I want to know is supply seems to be pretty low. Demand is stable to higher because interest rates are so historically low. So, are you seeing that trend across the nation or is it more pockets like where we are down here in the Southeast? No, it's fairly representative of what we're seeing across the nation that there's, there's definitely a lot of demand out there. We're in a seller's market for the most part. There's always, there's always areas where there are certain circumstances that may, may be affecting that. But for the most part, we're still in a seller's market, which is, which is interesting uh, with everything that we've been dealing with this year. Um, with the coronavirus pandemic and, and all that, I think that it's, I think that one reason why is because, you know, people are seeing the, the value and for various reasons in diversifying their investments and in owning land, the benefits of being able to get out of town and go breathe fresh air and have some space around you. So for that reason, we're, we're still in a very, very healthy, stable market where, you can't just go out and just have your pick of the litter and properties that are, that are priced correctly, that are quality properties or not stand on the market for very long. I know I'm seeing the same thing down here for sure. I mean, not only in land, but also in res in the residential markets uh, around where I am. Clint, are you seeing the same thing, you know, in the, in the black belt? Are you finding that properties priced accurately are just multiple offers and, you know, kind of really hot or uh, is it any different in your area? 
It's exactly the same. I mean, obviously our price schedule changes, but the, as long as the pricing is accurate, like you mentioned, things are moving. Jason, today we're going to be focusing in on the Midwest. So, you know, before we talk about the data, what can you tell me about the properties we're going to be talking about today? And maybe kind of look into what exactly is the Midwest? Yeah, so that's that's actually a good question to start off with. When it comes to the Midwest, there are some core states that definitely are undisputed, considered to be part of the Midwest. And then you've got some areas where maybe they're Midwest, maybe they're West or Southwest or whatever, Northwest, et cetera. But for today and for the the data that I pulled, I focused on six states, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Dakota. And just to give us a good sample of these Midwestern states, they're all similar, but they're also very different. And the interesting thing about the Midwest is that you can have ground that is very valuable, that brings a high price per acre, it's very diverse, that makes great recreational property that also is good for agribusiness. And then you've got parts of the country where that land is only used for one thing. It's used for grassland or it's used for farming and that's it. So it's quite interesting because you can have in one state, you can have uh, like for Nebraska, for instance, you can have in the eastern part of Nebraska, greater Omaha area, uh, which in our office in Omaha, our folks there focus on that greater market, but they also get in Iowa because it's just across the river. So you can see land trading $5,000 an acre and that's irrigated farmland, it's recreational property, et cetera. You go out west, go to the western part of the state, over towards Colorado, and you could pick up a track of land for three hundred, three to four hundred dollars an acre, which is is crazy to think of, but it's quite normal. And that's your typical CRP land, conservation reserve program. It's grassland, and that's it. It's just, I mean, you're in the wide open spaces out there, so. It's really interesting. It's, it's a really interesting market to and region to really get into and to try to understand how properties values stabilize and what affects them. Not to mention, it's just flat out beautiful country. Um, I mean, it's America. When you think of America, a lot of people think of the Midwest. So yeah, it's fun to talk about. Well, let's talk about the data itself a little bit before we get into the numbers and tell us a little bit about where National Land Realty gets the data that we're going to talk about today, and then what years we're going to be looking at. Sure. So, you know, part of our business, we think that in order to really be able to deliver the kind of value that our clients expect and should have, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but it just, it goes back to the importance of when you're working, when you're looking to sell or buy land, it is really imperative that you have an expert work with you on this. And so for our agents, for our land specialists, it's important for us to be able to supply them with the best data available to be able to use that uh, to our client's advantage. So we have a number of resources that, that we tap into to be able to acquire this data. And quite frankly, obtaining the data is not difficult. It just costs money. But getting that data in and turning it into something that's usable is where that's the secret sauce. And we've got a, a phenomenal team that, that all they do is focus on this, that's able to, to turn this information into, into something that can be beneficial for our folks. So what we're looking at right now, uh, when we get into these numbers, we're looking at 2018, 2019, and then what we have to date 
for 2020, which is effectively uh, the first quarter of 2020. Uh, from a from a, a numbers perspective, we've got about 10,000 sales for the Midwest in 2018, just over 9,000 in 2019, and then 2020. When you're in the year, it takes some time sometimes for this data to build up as sales are reported and that sort of thing. So we've got close to a thousand sales that we're pulling from for 2020. So we have to take all that into consideration. Why did I go back three years, go back to 2018? Because I always want to look and see what the trends are. When you're valuing a piece of property, you're, you're looking for the most recent sales. I mean, that's most important. And the rule of thumb is, is typically you can go back a year. That's going to be a good representative. You don't really want to go back further than a year unless there's just no other information out there for you to pull from. Uh, but for this process, I always like to go back further, a little bit further, because I want to see if any trends are happening. You know, are, are sales increasing or decreasing? What's happening with the number of sales and that sort of thing? So that's, uh, that's what we're looking at. So Burbage, you know, getting into the nitty gritty, how did all the, how did all the sales break down? Yeah, well, um, let's talk about that. Um, what I'll do is let's talk about the, the region first, and then um, then we'll break the states down. So um, 2020, let's talk about 2020 first. And again, we've only got a small, a small sample, basically first quarter sample for this year. But overall, the, uh, the median acreage that we're seeing trading is just under 98 acres. Median price per acre is $3,625, and the median sale amount is $368,000. So that's for those six states, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Dakota in 2020. So then looking at 2019 and 2018, this is where you have to be careful about not having a full year's worth of data because there's a significant difference, and we have to see how this plays out for the rest of the year between 2019 and what we've got currently for 2020. The size is effectively the same. So right now that median number in 2020 exactly is 97.91 acres. In 2019, it was 97.56 acres. So there's no real change in the size. The median price per acre for, for 2019 is just under 3,000 an acre, uh, whereas we're looking at over 3,600 an acre right now. And the sale amount is Still relatively close in the grand scheme of things, 368,000 in 2020 to 310,000 for 2019. So again, it will be interesting to see how the rest of 2020 plays out once we get all that data in. Uh, but for the most part, this is indicative of the market that we're experiencing. I mean, we're in a really good market. So I'm not surprised to see these numbers come in higher than, than 2019. 2018, median acreage was 100. 12 acres. So we're seeing a decrease in that. I'm not super surprised by that either. We've got more people entering the market because of factors that are, that we've discussed earlier. So when more people enter the market, you typically see a decrease in the acreage sizes uh, because you've got people with different financial capabilities. Um, not everybody's able to go out and buy a hundred plus acres, thousand plus acres. You've got people that are in this case, Again, this data is 50 plus acres, so you've got people that are buying smaller tracks. It's a whole other discussion, but that's an opportunity. It's a big opportunity for folks who either own larger tracks already or investors that are, that are looking at looking because there's definitely opportunity when more people are coming in. 
2018 median price per acre was again right at 3,000 an acre. Not much difference between 2018-2019, and uh, the median sale amount was was actually 340,000 versus 310,000. But in the, again, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a, not a big difference. So, healthy trends 2018-2019. We're seeing increases in 2020. So that increase in price per acre, I mean, this gets back to what we were talking about. What about the total number of sales? Are you, you know, I know that 2020 data is going to be somewhat limited because we're just still getting, you know, through this year. Did you see much of a difference in terms of transactions in the Midwest year to year and then going into this year? Year to year, it's pretty, it's very stable. We had a dip in 2019, but um, when you're looking at, when you're pulling these large volume numbers like that, a dip is not, I'm not concerned about that. It's a significant decrease or change, which would catch my attention. Again, sample sizes, 2018, we, we were looking at a little over 10,000 sales, 2019, a little over 9,000. Uh, and 2020, again, I don't even want to speculate on that because it's so, it's so early on in that. Again, I'm, th- these are good numbers to be able to pull this data from. When you break down the states, just as we talked about when we were talking about the Southeast, there's always going to be several states that are kind of close together. And then you're going to have your other states that are kind of taken off. Like for instance, in the Southeast Florida was that state where those uh, numbers were significantly trending higher than some of the other states. And there's good reason for that. There's a lot of people that live in Florida compared to the rest of the Southeast. In the Midwest, it's not so much population size as it is what type of land you got. In, a lot, in, in many cases. So I was the leader when it comes to values. I went in 2018, 2019, right around 4,500 bucks an acre on a median price per acre. So far this year, it's, it's, it's at 58, almost 59 actually. Wow. Uh, again, but that's a, that's a small segment that, section that we're looking at. So we don't want to hang our hat on that yet. Um, and then the other states, uh, Nebraska and uh, let, me, let me back up. Nebraska and Iowa are are pretty much close, and that's a lot of that has to do with eastern Nebraska and, and the values that are there. But that's also playing into the fact that the western Nebraska is a very different market. Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, South Dakota, very similar. You're looking at twenty five hundred to three thousand an acre, and for twenty twenty, all those numbers are are trending up. But again, the most important thing to take away from this is that these are very, very general numbers. You may be, you know, looking to buy in the Midwest or you may, you know, currently live in the Midwest and own something uh, and be thinking, man, I'd love to get $5,000 an acre for my my property. And it may be worth that. It may be more or it may be less. And land can be extremely complicated when it comes to valuing it. So it's, and that actually we always promote our experts in national land really, but when it all comes down to it, you know, if I'm brokering a deal and I'm representing the seller and the buyer's got someone representing them, I want a land expert representing them, even if it's from a different company, because I'm confident that they're getting expert advice and you need to have somebody come in and look at what you've got because there's so many variables that play into it. Doesn't matter what part of the country that you're in, but in the Midwest, You've got water. That's a big thing that people take for granted in other parts of the country. You've got land diversity, parts of Kansas. You've got very diverse property with uh, big whitetail hunting and that sort of thing that you don't get out west in the western part of the state. Minerals, mineral rights. That's a huge thing. 
And again, this builds into the complication of how these deals can go and, and the valuation aspects of it. In many states in our country, it is expected that mineral rights go with surface rights. In, in the Southeast, with the exception of the Gulf, that's, that's expected. But as Clint can attest to, and, and as many Midwestern landowners under, completely understand, that is not, it is not normal for mineral rights to run with surface rights. Quite often it's different. So because of that, if you're investing in that market and you don't understand that, you need to get with somebody who can explain that to you because you, you can have a very rude awakening if you don't understand what you're buying into. Um, you could buy a 400 acre track of grassland that's got mineral oil underneath it that are owned by somebody else. And if you don't understand how all that works, it can be a game changer in, in the wrong direction for you. So I just can't reiterate how important that it is to be consulting with people who know what they're doing when it comes to this sort of thing. And a lot of times you get all the way to closing and, you know, all those things are written in black and white in a, in a title commitment in the exceptions. And if you're not working with somebody that understands how to read that and point it out to you, you go ahead and close and have no idea until you get that letter or somebody shows up ready to install a derrick. Exactly. That's exactly right. Or, or mine or cut timber. I mean, I've, I've seen tracks come through that were bought, let's say two landowners ago from a, large paper company that reserved all the surface mineral rights too, you know, cause state to state, the definition of minerals changes in Alabama. Uh, minerals does not include sand, gravel, and clay unless it's specifically cited. Uh, that may change depending on what state you're in. And this company had reserved all surface mineral rights too, which then in fact devalued all the timber that was standing on it because it, at any point in time, that surface mineral owner could come in, uh, and under their rights to harvest that, clear the timber. Now, they'd had an obligation to sell the timber at the current market prices. But if you're in a crappy market, you just bought a property where you have somebody else previously removed your ability to negotiate the market rate of that timber or in which markets you sell that timber. And that's huge. And if you don't have somebody there with you that's working with you that knows to look for those things in the exceptions and they don't point it out, you could close on it be perfectly, you know, really just left holding the bag. Yep. Absolutely. You just can't reiterate that enough that it's just a whole different business and you need to put people in your corner, whether you're selling or buying that know what they're doing or dealing with these things on a daily basis. If you want to make sure that if you're selling, you're selling for the best value because it can flip, you know, too. I mean, <laughs> you could think you're getting a great deal selling at $5,000 per acre when in reality you should have been at 10, you know, it's just, you got to make sure you got a local knowledgeable person and you've got that. I mean, with national land in the Midwest, which States do we have offices in now, Jason? Well, the simplest way to explain this is that we're, we're in 47 States around the country now. So we're in every single state that I just, that I just mentioned today and we'll be in every state in short time coming. So if we happen to be, if you contact us and we happen not to have uh, anybody in the field in your state, we will make sure you get introduced with to somebody who is an expert, even if they're not with National Land, really, because that's the importance of that just is, is paramount when it's all said and done. There's no doubt about it. Well, Jason, uh, thanks for updating us on uh, land values in the Midwest. Uh, when we talk to you next time, where are we going to be covering? We're going to take a look at the Southwest. Uh, so we're not going to go too far, but it's, again, it's different yeah. and uh, it's fun. So 
we'll be diving into that next. Well, we'll be looking forward to that and stay safe until we talk to you again. Thanks for joining us. All right, guys. Thank you. This week's What's My Land Worth segment has been brought to you by Alabama Black Belt Adventures and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty. Black Belt Bounty celebrates the rich hunting traditions of the Alabama Black Belt. It features award-winning writers, photography, and recipes from some of Alabama's nationally recognized chefs. It's a really awesome coffee table book, guys. Y'all pick up your copy at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash blackbeltbounty. Clint, we were talking about land values and, and the differences, you know, between, say, Midwestern values and Southeastern values. Some of the property up there goes for fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 an acre in some cases. And you, you've seen guys selling land up there to come buy more land down here, right? Yep. Uh, it's not always farming related. I mean, I've currently got a customer that, that sold his property in the Midwest for 16000 an acre. You know, some of the higher end farmland that Burbridge was mentioning, uh, you know, some of those high end outliers that we see. And, you know, this guy wants to come down to the south, buy a little little pasture land, little mixture of timber hunting land. Uh, so we're, you know, going to be knocking on the door of, of about 2000 an acre on whatever he buys. So he's going to see an eight times return, eight, eight times increase in the number of acres that he's coming out of and going into, you know, which is which is a, a nice problem to have and I, I asked him I said are you moving down here to farm he said well you know mainly I'm just coming down there to get away from the snow I'm ready to go to the beach instead of going skiing yeah you know he's going to have a few hobby cows and horses but other than that it sounds like he's pretty much retiring that's a good lead-in to today's topics uh, which are tax shelters and hopefully he's able to execute a 1031 exchange as he moves down here and roll over all of the earnings and the appreciation of his property in the Midwest into investing that into land in the Southeast. Yep, he is. That's right. We're in the, in the throes of that time, time crunch now. Well, you know, one of the things about 1031 exchanges is here we are, you know, we're moving in towards the end of the year. And for folks that don't know, explain the basics of a, of a 1031 exchange and in a reverse 1031 exchange. Well, uh, reverse gets a little complicated sometimes, but on the forward, you know, the conventional 1031 exchange, you sell a property uh, before closing, you engage a qualified intermediary and they take possession of the funds of the proceeds from closing and hold it in escrow for you. Uh, and then from the closing date, you've got 45 days to identify. There's three ways to do it, but the most common way that, that we see is there's uh, one route is that you identify up to three properties the combined price of those properties has no limit on the other methods that there are out there. They've got limits on what the total aggregated price asking prices can be. So that's one reason people use the three property method so much. Uh, so you identify up to three properties that you will buy to replace the relinquished property and you can buy more than one parts of two doesn't matter as long as they come out of those three. And then once you identify those three, after the 45th day of the identification period expires, you've got 135 days to close on some combination of those three properties. Uh, so the entire time period is 180 days from the closing of the relinquished property. Uh, and as long as you reinvest all those funds in that time period, all, all of the funds and especially your profit is what you're trying to protect here. 
then you will defer any taxes on your gains, your capital gain uh, from then on. And then if you hold it there and then it transfers to your heirs through a will, they get a step up in basis and that's true tax avoidance in that case. But other than that, uh, in your lifetime, all you're doing is deferring those taxes forward until the point in time that you do take them in a liquid form. Well, we'll talk about that step up in basis in just a minute. But one of, let's be honest, when you enter into a 1031 exchange, it's a little bit stressful because you got to go find something you want to buy in a fairly short window. Um, That's right. Which is where DSTs, Delaware Statutory Trusts, and also the reverse 1031 can come into play. So before we go into the reverse 1031, why would somebody, what is a Delaware statutory trust and why would you choose that to kind of alleviate that stress? The main thing that I like to point out is that it is a passive investment to where you can roll into multiple asset types or single asset types that are managed by other people. They're managed more like a traditional stock portfolio, but it's typically going to be, you know, some form of rental property. It's going to be multifamily. It's going to be commercial, industrial, malls, warehouses. I mean, you can, you can pick, you know, which asset class you go into. Of course, you want to make sure that you deal with a a reputable group that's been around a long time. Uh, And what that should equate to is basically mailbox money for you. You'll start, you typically will see a a six to 10% return, you know, six to seven being probably the most median returns, annual return which is great. You don't have any more headaches of managing the property. If it's in a you know timber or farming tract that you're coming out of, uh, you don't have any kind of uh, economic or, or mother nature risk that come with some of those. Uh, you know, so it's good for period depending on for people, depending on what stage of their life they're in uh, just to be able to, you know, protect the, the income from taxes, but still have a viable investment they can pass along to their family. You know, and then over time you start, you, you get passed through depreciation and, and a check that shows up each month or each quarter, depending on how they do distributions and you don't have to worry about it anymore. It's just nice to have that mailbox money. So, you know, DSTs are pretty popular with ownership of like apartment buildings. So you could, you know, use your guy in the Midwest as an example. He could, he could, if he wanted to get out of farmland, get into an apartment building, could he then 1031 out of that DST into land again in the future? Yes. So you can 1031 in and in and out of them. So that's a, that's a good option, just depending on what's going on. Maybe you've got a market that's hot right now and a market that's somewhat depressed. You can pick and choose what the right move is for you at that time and, and, and use those vehicles that way. Now, the reverse, I think, is kind of a best of both worlds scenario. It's not truly incorporating the same things that the DST T does, but to me, it takes a lot of that, takes a lot of that stress uh, that is involved with the 1031 away. So explain what you would do if you wanted to reverse 1031. So on the conventional 1031, you're identifying what you're going to buy because you've already sold the, the, the relinquished property or you've got it under contract. And with the reverse, you're identifying what you're going to sell. So you buy first and you buy it through the qualified intermediary he holds title uh, for you until you sell whatever you one of the three properties that you identified to sell if you're using the same methodology. And then you back the funds into what you have already purchased. And that money comes or the title comes out of the qualified intermediary to you. 
do you have a limited amount of time to sell the property that you currently own? Yes, the same 180 days applies. So you're going to uh, 45 days to identify what you're going to sell. And then after the expiration of that 45, 45th day, 135 to close uh, on one of those and basically reimburse yourself out of escrow with the QI to relinquish that title for that property to you. Hence, you know, that's just another point why it's so important to get your pricing accurate because if you're selling a big property, uh, especially a high dollar property, if you're, if you don't have accurate pricing, it, it can sit on the market for a while and you may miss your opportunity at your 1031 if it doesn't sell in the, in the right period of time. That's where, you know, that valuation is so important. You talked about the step up in basis. Explain that as a tax shelter. Well, and, and one thing to remember on a 1031s, I'll point out before we jump over is, and I had this text from a seller last night asking is, can I pay off my debt at closing uh, when I relinquish property going into a 1031? And the answer is technically yes, but would that income be taxed? Yes, because uh, the way the IRS is going to look at it is is that you took profit and paid off your loan. Uh, so what is typically required is that you take an equal or greater amount of debt forward to the next property with you. And that way you protect hundred percent of that capital gain. Uh, otherwise you're going to pay some taxes when you pay off that loan. That's a good point, Clint. Now, you know, previously you mentioned that step up in basis. So let's talk about that a little bit because that's another, that's another important tax shelter. Land is a generational asset many times, you know, where, where families want to pass it down. Uh, and you hear of a lot of different ways to do that. Uh, some people are gifted the land. Some people are just in the side of trust. You know, probably the more traditional method uh, is to will it to somebody. through. When you pass away, it's, it's identified in their will that it passes to them. If it goes to them in that method, you get a step up in basis to the full market value as of the date of your death. Uh, so if you have, you know, done a series of 1031 exchanges, just to tie back to that into this property, and then you will it to them, they get a step up in basis. So their cost basis in the property uh, is actually at fair market value. So they have no liability for the capital gains made uh, by you in the past. So it is a huge deal. And if your basis, let's say in a track was essentially $500 an acre and it's worth $2,000 an acre now, and you gifted it to them, your basis transfers forward to them. So $500 an acre, and then they sell it for $2,000 an acre. They've got a $1,500 an acre capital gain. If you willed it to them and it's worth $2,000 an acre and they sell it for $2,000 an acre, they owe no taxes. Right. So that is, you know, $300 an acre potential um, tax liability. You just save them by willing it to them as opposed to gifting it to them. Now, Clint, you know, when we're talking about stepping up in basis, I don't want to confuse that with a depletion of your tax basis. So talk about the differences between those two things and how they apply to, to sheltering yourself from taxes. So, you know, this is a, a good segue to, to point out that it's, crucial that you understand what your basis is in your property when especially when you go to sell it because that's going to determine how much if any taxes you owe and we always have a lot of clients especially people that have inherited land that don't understand basis at all and they just assume that they're going to pay taxes on all of the proceeds 
And many times they're going to pay taxes on none of the proceeds mm-hmm. at the maximum, very little. But um, on depletion, what that is, is if the easiest example there is, is with timberland. If a property's got $2,000 an acre in timber on it, and you bought the property conventionally, uh, cash, mortgage, or inherited, and you got to step up in basis, that means that you can take $2,000 an acre in timber income off of it uh, with no tax liability because all you did was convert it from a, a timber form uh, to liquid funds. If you've got a basis from when you bought the property of $2,000 an acre, but you've now have $3,000 an acre in timber on it that has grown into through the years, I'm just going to use easy math here. You can still take $2,000 an acre in income off of it tax free, but then the next $1,000 an acre would be taxed at the applicable capital, long-term capital gains rate. You know, so it's still very extremely low historically. And then any management activity that you've done on the property from building fire lanes to buying equipment, you know, any, any qualified event can also add back to your basis uh, if you didn't capitalize it in the year of the expense, if you didn't write it off. So, you know, that even includes mileage to and from the property, you know, hiring consultants, spray and burning, anything, you know, there, there's a lot of things out there that would qualify for that, that people aren't aware of, you know, so it's, it's an excellent tool at, at sheltering income. So in a best case scenario, you buy land today, you cut timber on it up to the point that you deplete your, your tax basis, you pay no, no taxes on that timber, and then you will that land, that dirt and whatever else is on it to your heirs, which steps up their basis, they could then sell it and pay no taxes on that. I mean, in theory, in an example like that, the ownership of that land and the harvest of that timber would create no tax liability. Correct. All right, folks. Well, that's going to wrap it up this week. This week's Huntland podcast has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. As always, Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like us to email you the podcast, just head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash land and join our email list. We'll send you the podcast each week. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you again soon. This week's show has been brought to you by Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com. And also, Alabama Ag Credit, buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. And also Bay County Armory. Are you looking for a purpose-built AR-10 or AR-15? If you are, be sure to check out Bay County Armory. BCA builds firearms that suit your individual needs. Bay County Armory, purpose-built AR-10s and AR-15s will guide you in designing the firearm of your dreams. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850 832 
888-382-2238. And also, Great Days Outdoors, the South's finest hunting and fishing magazine. Pick up your copy wherever magazines are sold or check them out at greatdaysoutdoors.com. 